Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You're listening to the Circe Podcast Network. I'm Joshua Gibbs, and this is Proverbial, the podcast where we explore the wisdom of the ages as it comes to us in Proverbs, by which I mean wise sayings a man may live by if he's not so arrogant as to think himself special. Episode 108, A House Divided. Today's proverb comes from St. Paul. I'll read it twice. What I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. Once more, what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. This is probably only the third or fourth passage of scripture that has been used as the inspiration for an episode of the show. It's tricky to do passages of scripture because Proverbs are just interpreted differently than theological claims. And most people take every passage of scripture to have an absolute, singularly theological value. Many people are uncomfortable with the idea that a passage of scripture could have a merely philosophical value. Although I think the saying from St. Paul that we're going to look at today can be viewed both ways. It can have a theological value, but it can have a philosophical value too. It can have uh, a relevance just to human life. It's not necessarily a revelation of who God is. It's just a revelation of what it means to be human. What I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. I think everyone, when they hear this, maybe more so than any other passage of scripture. Whenever we hear this, sometimes quoted in secular culture, it's such a famous saying that you don't have to be a Christian to be familiar with it. When we hear it come up in a sermon, we're reading the book of Romans, 
Whenever you hear this, there's something in you that says, that is so true. More so, I think, than almost any other passage of Scripture. There are many passages of Scripture we want to be true, we hope are true, that we take on faith. There are many passages passages of Scripture that we don't understand and that we puzzle over. But this saying from St. Paul is something that when you hear it, it immediately rings true. There's no confusion, really, over what Paul is referring to here. This is such a human realization. It's such a human claim. I don't live the way that I want to. But before we get there, I'd like to paraphrase this proverb to make it a bit more clear. So, uh, here's a common paraphrase of this proverb. Oftentimes, when you hear it quoted out there in the world, uh, you don't hear the abbreviated version. You actually hear the longer version of this. So you don't hear what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. You hear a somewhat more rhetorically precise version of this. And that's what I want to do, I do not do, but what I don't want to do, I do. And I'm sure that there's, maybe someone could enlighten me, uh, a name for the rhetorical device that's being used in what I want to do, I do not do, but what I don't want to do, I do. And it's not just what I don't want to do, but what I hate. So what I really don't want to do, the things that I really want to do, I don't do. And the things that I really don't want to do, I do. In other words, I really wish I did what I know I ought to do. There are relatively few moral conundrums in life. There are relatively few situations where you are presented with two different moral options and you honestly cannot tell which one is right. It's far more common for us to understand what the options are and to simply not have the courage or the strength or the desire to do what's right. There's no real confusion. There's no genuine uncertainty. There's just a lack of will to do what's right. But what I really want to do, I do not do. What I really don't want to do, I do. What does it mean to want to do something? I think that's a fair question to ask of this proverb. What I really want to do, I don't do, and what I really don't want to do, I do, is sort of a riddle because we all know that you can't do anything without wanting to do it. Everything that you do, whether it's right or wrong, is born of some desire. Either a good desire or a bad desire, but a desire nonetheless. So how can we want to do something that we don't do? What does it mean to want? Now, the most common way of explaining this, at least in the, uh, the classical tradition, is to acknowledge 
separate spheres of willing in a human being that have to be brought into harmony with one another, but which are nonetheless often at odds with one another. And this is simply what we mean when we say that we're torn or that part of me wants to do something. Like this is a very common way in which we describe a conflict between these spheres of willing, between these realms of willing. Well, part of me wants to uh, go for a jog. Part of me wants to go for a walk. Part of me wants to go to work. But the other part of me wants to stay home. What are these parts? When we refer to part of me, what do we mean? Well, again, classical tradition. There are three realms of willing in a person. There are three parts. Might as well use the word parts. Since we're not talking about God, we can talk about parts of a man. Can't talk about parts of God. It's tempting. It would be easy, uh, relatively easy, to talk about God if we could use the word parts, but we can't. God is one. He has no parts. But we might as well think of it as parts of a man. Three parts, three realms of human desiring typified by three organs in the body, which are the brain, the heart, and the stomach. In order to do what's right, the brain and the heart and the stomach have to be made to get along. Each of these three organs does something different. The brain knows. The heart loves. And the stomach yearns. It's a little, uh, I think it's a little uncertain what the best word is for what the stomach does. We could say that the, uh, the stomach yearns. We could say that it desires. We could say maybe if we were going to put, if we were going to put it in the language of modern advertising, we would say the stomach craves. The stomach craves what it wants. The brain knows what it wants. The heart loves what it wants. The stomach craves what it wants. And each of these organs has a different level of strength. The stomach is by far the strongest of all of these organs. And by this, I mean that most of our actions revolve around cravings. Most of our actions revolve around yearning. So let's say that the stomach has a power of four. The heart has a power of three. And the brain has a power of two. And this is merely saying that knowing something is right or true or best is not enough to get you to do what's right or true. Mere knowing is insufficient. I think this is the point of today's proverb. Knowing is not enough. What I ought to do, what I know I ought to do, I don't do. There's a kind of hidden or invisible reference to knowledge in the front part of this proverb. What I ought to do, I do not do. What I know I ought to do. But what I hate on an intellectual level, I do anyway because I'm governed by my stomach. Merely knowing 
is generally insufficient to produce action. We know all sorts of things that we have no interest in acting on. Merely knowing that you ought to lose weight doesn't necessarily mean you're going to lose weight. Merely knowing you ought to read your Bible will generally not produce Bible reading in you. We know all of these things. And we don't do them because we don't ultimately have a desire for them. Or because we don't love what's right. We know we ought to read the Bible, but we don't really love the Bible. We know the Bible, we know of the Bible, we know things that are fitting to say about the Bible, but we don't love it. We don't love it, really, because we don't spend a whole lot of time with it. You can't claim that you love something that you devote so little time to. The things that we love are proved by our schedules. Your schedule is a list of things that you love. Your schedule is your most reliable set of priorities. We love the things that we lavish time on. We love the things that we lavish money on. And to claim that you love something that you don't spend any time or money on is just delusional. Where your heart is, there your money will be also, as the Lord says. If you want to learn to love something more, you could start by just throwing a lot of money at it. So the stomach has a power of four. Heart has a power of three. Brain has a power of two. This means that the stomach can only be governed if the brain and the heart work together. Which means that you need to love the right things in order to do the right things. Knowledge is not enough. Even the demons know that there is a God, as St. James says. And that knowledge of God isn't doing them any good. And this is a painful realization. This is a tough pill for modern Christians to swallow. Knowing God isn't necessarily good. Believing that God is, isn't enough. The demons believe God is, and they hate him. The problem for the demons is not a matter of knowledge, but a matter of love. And there are plenty of people for whom this is true as well. The Enlightenment made knowing, as opposed to loving, the apex of the human experience. The, the truest essence of human experience is knowing, knowledge, wisdom, data, everything in the enlightened world revolves around facts. Uh, data analytics are the surest way forward uh, within, the, within the mind of an enlightened man. Everything comes down to uh, knowledge applied, data put to work. That's progress. Progress is always data put to, put to some kind of, I would say, practical end, but maybe just technological end. For the Enlightenment, everything centers around um, progressive use of technology, which is why um, if in 100 years we make it to Mars, uh, we figure out the technology, we figure out how to make it to Mars, we figure out how to bring humans to Mars and then bring them back again, and there's a, a settlement on Mars, 
if in a hundred years this was the case, and if at the same time everybody on Mars was horribly depressed and hated everyone else who was on Mars, and everyone on Earth hated the people on Mars, and they hated the people, if everybody in the whole world was miserable, the enlightened mind would still think we had made progress because we put miserable people on Mars. That's the extent to which the enlightenment cares about technology and progress. It really doesn't matter what we love, provided that we're doing things that were thought undoable before, that we're putting knowledge to some sort of applied usage. And the enlightenment makes knowledge the center of, of human life, really because the enlightenment also sets aside all interest in spirituality. If we just care about material things, if we just care about material progress, and we set all spiritual things aside, then we can make progress. We can all work together, even if we have different spiritual beliefs. But consider how generally useless knowledge is <laughs> for you. Consider how much useless knowledge you have. Imagine for a moment, and if you want to see just how much useless knowledge you have, imagine for a moment that you could live the next year of your life exactly as you want to right now. Imagine that you could sit down tonight and make a plan for yourself to follow. Things to do and not do. And that for one year you could live exactly according to this plan. Like down to the hour. Maybe down to the half hour. You could plan out your year. Well, I'm not going to Look at my phone for one year. I'm not going to look at a screen for one year. And you, and you imagine what your life would be like if you went screen-free for a year. And it's this, it's this wonderful fantasy. It's this tantalizing fantasy. It's a tantalizing fantasy or it's a tantalizing possibility because you're confident that you know what is right. Inasmuch as living exactly as you plan is intriguing and kind of wonderful, that's the degree to which you're confident that you know what's right. But the playing field on which our most difficult decisions are made is the heart. Most tough calls come down to what you love the most. If you're confident that you know what's right, and that you could set forth this ideal year, live according to all the, all the things you know are best, you're not going to do that. You know you're not going to do that. And it's because knowledge is not enough. It's because knowledge divorced from right love is worthless. It's even destructive. Knowledge apart from virtuous love will tear you apart. In and of itself, knowledge is useless. Again, modern people are particularly poorly suited to tough decisions because they think of love purely in terms of feeling. Feelings are regarded as absolute and ultimately ungovernable. Now, there is something mysterious about the human experience, of course, but I think that modern people 
often misunderstand the nature of the mystery of being human. And they center the mystery of being human in feelings, which come and go and we cannot control. We don't know where love comes from. We don't understand how love emerges or how love can be controlled. And we don't think that body and soul are really connected. I think this is, uh, this is a necessary implication of uh, our sort of agnostic approach to love. Modern people are agnostics about love. Um, we don't know where it comes from. It seems to arise mysteriously. We're born with certain loves. Love is unassailable. As soon as you recognize a love, you must obey it. All love is essentially the same. Love is love. And why is love love? Well, because all love is mysterious and comes from the same place. And you can't do anything about it but fulfill it. Um, it's beyond human uh, power to really control love. And if you squash any love or trim back or impair any love in your heart, well, that's dehumanizing. So the essence of being human is this uncontrollable thing within you which must be obeyed in order to live an authentic life. And it's an inauthentic life if you ever tell your heart no. Or if you ever try to govern your heart or steer yourself towards new loves and away from old loves. I think that Christians have largely bought into this. We think of love as an uncontrollable thing. We love God, but our love of God is implanted in our hearts by God. So again, all love is beyond our control. And so we don't believe body and soul are really connected. A man is split down the middle between aspects of himself that he can control and aspects that he can't. And we can control the body to a great extent, but absolutely nothing about the soul can be controlled. Or else we try to control the soul with bodily things, just the rise of high-powered drugs, mind-altering drugs, soul-altering drugs that will allow you to have a kind of weird sort of control over your soul by chemical means. Most people think of their bodies as nothing more than liabilities then, at least Christians do. Um, for the non-Christian, the body is kind of uh, the means by which you achieve all of your truest desires. But I think that there's a lamentable number of Christians who are tempted to think of the body as nothing more than a liability. We think, if I didn't have this stupid body, I could be good. And we're tempted to think this, of course, because so many of the things the stomach yearns for are physical things. Um, sex, food, uh, the pleasures of sleep, the animal pleasures of the world. And it's the body that inclines us towards these animal pleasures. You have to use your body for the benefit of your soul, though. You have to conceive of your body as a thing that can help your soul. Your body is the best tool you have for creating new loves. Why? Well, because it's possible to force yourself to do what's right. And if you force your body to do good, for long enough, the good will become a habit, which is to say it will become second nature. It will become you. Your body is the means by which you force your stomach to do what's right. The devil doesn't have a body. 
Which is why he constantly tries to get you to use your body against your soul. The devil has a sort of jealousy over human bodies. The jealousy of the devil is one of those constant themes in Paradise Lost. So many things that are uniquely human gall the devil, including bodies. And so the devil tries to turn our bodies against us, and he is largely successful, which is one of the reasons why people come to despise their bodies and think of their bodies as liabilities. But consider that the body is the means by which we're tempted, which means that there are no abstract temptations. I argue this in How to Be Unlucky. There's no such thing as an abstract temptations. Temptations are always toward physical things. There is no temptation to gluttony in the abstract. The devil does not say, hey, you should go eat a lot. He says, you should go eat a lot of that. That food, those chips, that ice cream, you should go eat all of that. The devil doesn't say, you should watch something perverse. He says, you should watch this. This one right here. I picked out this video for you. I picked out this website for you. I picked out this film, this TV channel. I picked out this TV, this laptop. The temptation to watch something perverse is always the temptation to watch something perverse that is brought to you on like a physical, in a physical way. There's no abstract temptations. Which means that it is possible to resist temptation, to flee temptation. If temptation were a purely spiritual phenomenon, you couldn't really flee from temptation. But we are instructed to flee from temptation. So when the devil brings these things to us, or brings us to these things, and he attempts to get us to betray our bodies, or to betray our souls with our bodies, we have to do what Eve should have done when Satan led her to the tree. And she should have run. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.